folks, Dr. Tim Jordan back here with you with a brand new podcast for Raising Daughters. I come to you every week to talk about different issues that um, that are facing our girls today. Uh, I see girls in grade school, middle school, high school, and even college in my counseling practice, uh, run the retreats and the, the school program. So I'm sitting with girls a lot. And, it's, and one of the things that I've noticed is they're very ignorant about their bodies. And they're very ignorant about things like puberty and the changes of puberty. And so, because that's not my exact area of expertise, what I decided to do today is have a guest on. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Maggie Abraham, and she's a board-certified OBGYN doctor with a subspecialty training in something called pediatric and adolescent gynecology, which they, they I guess it's called PAG, right? Yes. It's a pretty new thing. She can talk about that. So she's had a passion for helping teens and people who care for them to understand better about how to help girls with their reproductive health. Um, and she launched a, a new uh, project called the GYN Space, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the podcast, to give some information to teenagers and their parents about taking care of their bodies and understanding their bodies. So thank you very much, Dr. Abraham, for, for coming on Raising Daughters. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I went to medical school 100 years ago. I, I don't remember in my even my pediatric residency, I don't remember having a PAGS training or hearing about people who are who are specializing in adolescent uh, gynecology. So is that am I thinking right that it's a fairly new thing? Yeah, it is a new it is a newer field. Um yeah, I mean I completed a whole residency in pediatric I mean a whole residency in obstetrics and gynecology and I didn't realize um, the the field existed. It was only later on um, practicing as a young attending that I discovered the field. There's only about 20 of us that graduate um, from fellowship each year in the whole of North America. Wow. So it's a smaller subspecialty within the larger field of obstetrics and gynecology. And our focus really is on um, the younger population, right? From, hmm. from birth through to to 25. Yeah. yeah. So I always ask my guests their path to where they are now because because so many young people are so stressed out about they should know you know their final picture of their life. So I'm curious about how you got to where you are. Yeah. So I'm actually Irish, born and raised. Um I went to medical school there. Did. Met my husband. Yeah. Um, met my husband who's from South Florida um, while he was studying in Ireland and he lured me stateside. So I came out here and completed residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And along the way, we got married and I've been here ever since. Um, uh, yeah, and now we live here in Orlando, Florida and we have four kids and a dog. Um, yeah. And yeah. Where in Ireland are you from? Limerick, the South. Yeah, I remember in between college and med school one summer, I spent six weeks traveling around. I met a friend of mine who was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford, England. And then I went to Ireland by myself for about 10 days. And I went down to, past, I think, Limerick, down to Tralee. Down yeah, to, got married in The Ring of Kerry and all that. It was, oh, so I love that area. It's beautiful. Yeah. How far, yeah. How far is Limerick it's from there? So we actually got married in Tralee. Oh. So I live on the actual um, Limerick Terry border. So literally about 30 minutes from Tralee. Oh, yeah. Nice. The small world, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah. maybe I passed you when I was in the pub <laughs> wherever I was when I was down there, rode my bike around and stuff. So and it's interesting because I, yeah. I, I think our paths have crossed, a, well, a couple of times because I did my fellowship in at Washi yeah. St. Louis, which is where you are, right? Yeah, yeah. So how, when, did you, yeah, when did you know, or tell me about your path to, to, to becoming a doctor, to becoming an OBGYN doctor, and then the specialty, how'd you get that, you know, how'd that path look? Yeah, so I thought we were going to talk about puberty, but here we go. We can talk about my career trajectory. But we will talk. I, I, we definitely will talk about <laughs> puberty, but I want to hear about how you got to Not your, at all. Like, yeah, of course. So I really discovered the field of pediatric and adolescent gynecology when I was working as a young attending at the University of Florida, where teenagers and college students would come to my practice with a, a variety of gynecology issues, often inadequately addressed for many years. And the lack of awareness of GYN conditions among adolescents left them, you know, suffering without a diagnosis or appropriate treatment for many years. So that's really what inspired me to dedicate my practice to young people and their unique needs, um, unique gynecology needs. And so then I went back and completed fellowship training um, in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. Yeah. And when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Ah, that's always a tough question, right? Um, my dad was a vet. Hmm. So interestingly, from a young age, I enjoyed, you know, hopping in the car, going from farm to farm, helping him with C-sections. And we had a small surgery for it. He was large and small. And he had a large and small animal practice. So we had a small surgery attached to our house too, where he did, you know, uh, small procedures on dogs and cats mostly. And he was forever, you know, asking me to assist him. And I, I think I was kind of fascinated from a young age and, I think he taught me how to suture and different things. So I think that um, definitely um, cultivated, like my dad probably cultivated an interest. And then um, I like animals, but <laughs> I think I like people a little um, working yeah. with people, maybe more. Um, and then science, uh, I, I gravitated to those things in school and um yeah I mean I think I think circumstances played a role um exposure and lived experiences played a role actually halfway through <laughs> we're taking a little detour here but halfway through medical school I actually took a year off the books um you go to medical school like I started medical school at 17 mm. so it's quite early um, it's, it's different. Our, our educational system is different to, um, the U S and, um, I was more of a practical hands-on learner in the first three years of medical school is, um, is more didactics and, um, very little patient interaction. And it's more, you know, biochemistry, uh, physiology, uh, pharmacology. Please. Yeah. I mean, I, nightmares I, you're talking about. It. Well, no, it was, it, it was fine, but it was just far removed from what I had envisioned. Yeah. And so I thought I had a moment of, gosh, is this really what I want to do? And so I, um, I took a year off the books. They held my med school place and I traveled to Nepal 
um, I worked in a, um, I volunteered in a, in a mm. school teaching mm. English for street kids. And I traveled through a lot of Asia. Um, and I think, you know, that was actually a formative experience. And I came back with renewed interest in, in completing my, my medical degree. And honestly, I think that adventure shaped a lot, you know, I think being willing to kind of step out and, and do something different and, um, explore, um, I think, you know, that was the skills that I learned at that time, I think informed future decision-making and even maybe my leap state side. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I encourage young women who, maybe, yeah. I encourage young women who are struggling and they're just kind of burned out with school. It might be 19 or 20 or whatever. I'm always saying it's okay to take some time off. It's okay to, you know, there's, yeah. there's those woofing things. I know a bunch of girls now who are doing woof experiences in Europe just to get away and to clear their head and to travel and to meet some different kinds of people, blah, blah, blah. And I think they grow up a lot in those, like, I guess it sounds like you did also in those experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would recognize it as feeling burnt out. I think just a huge desire to experience something different. Yeah. Um, you know, um, yeah. So we're talking to Dr. Maggie Abraham. She's an OBGYN doctor, and she, we're going to start talking right now about puberty. And so I, I have lots of questions. Uh, for instance, things like when should parents start to talk to their daughters about what's coming up? And also then how, what should they say to their daughters? What kind of education do you think uh, parents should be giving to kids? Yeah, they're, they're great questions. Thank you for asking them um, and really important. So often parents um, and guardians put off talking um, to their kids about puberty, thinking that it's maybe better to wait until their child is in puberty to start that conversation. Um, but in my experience, you know, many teens and tweens would actually rather learn about it before it starts so they can be aware and prepare for it. Um, you know, puberty can be confusing and overwhelming, especially if they're not prepared for it. So providing that education early can translate into emotional and mental preparedness. And I think that fosters confidence and capacity to manage some of the challenges that will inevitably come with puberty. So I, I think it's important to understand the timeline of when puberty starts, because, you know, as parents, our kids grow up fast, right? Um, so girls typically start puberty sometime between eight and 11 years old, right? And often, you know, they young women and girls are busy growing their whole lives. So they don't even notice some of the puberty changes, right? And the first time they may become aware of it is, you know, when they get breast development or hair growing and in interesting places, right? Yeah. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think, you know, starting the conversation really early on, small amounts of information and just layering it on over time and building on existing knowledge is is key um i, think really one, important. One I don't think you can start early enough i think yeah. things like anatomy correct naming parts i think those things should start from the from the outset and then you layer on 
the information as, as your child grows. One of the areas I see that girls struggle with because they're, they like information about what's going on in their bodies is their weight. Um, they'll start talking about how fat they are and they're, they're going through the normal tween, you know, preteen, tween, and then parts of puberty where they're supposed to be gaining weight. And sometimes they look a little chubby for a while because fat is layered on different places before it all kind of comes together, but they think they're fat. Well, gaining weight is an essential part of puberty, right? Um, growing, changing shape and storing fat in your body. That's all normal. And I think we have to normalize these conversations yeah. and it is especially tricky, you know, to talk to girls about weight and food. And on one hand, you know, we don't want them to face the health consequences of poor nutrition and obesity. Um, but we also don't want to say things that might trigger disordered eating. And so, you know, we have to be careful with the messaging. Um, you know, they also live in a world where there's toxic messaging from media and pure culture, you know, um, and this this societal pressure to be slender. Um, so, you know, there are normal parameters of weight gain and height gain with, in puberty. Um, and some girls are, are going to gain weight first and then grow taller. And other girls are going to get taller and then gain their weight. Um, and I really think, you know, if weight gain or, or weight loss is a health concern to a parent, then involve your pediatrician in that discussion. Um, and I think focus on ways to maintain healthy weight and promote physical activity as part of family life. Um, one helpful thing, you know, we tend to label our foods as healthy, unhealthy, good foods and bad foods. And all that messaging actually doesn't serve our daughters well. Um, I think um, one helpful way is kind of categorizing food as anytime foods and sometimes foods and knowing that, you know, our kids are going to want to are going to want some junk foods, right? That's a normal mm -hmm. part of, of life too. And so I really think that we have to shift some of our focuses on, um, on food and weight gain and avoid any power struggles with her daughter. I think you spoke about those in one of your former podcasts but avoiding power struggles about food and weight and instead frame their choices around the care that they take of themselves and not in terms of, of, of rules and that you're telling them to follow. And yeah. I talked to a lot of girls. It's hard. Yeah. I talked to a lot of girls when they start to get that weight around their waist and maybe their upper arms when they're starting puberty, that sometimes besides their own voice saying, you know, what's going on in my body, sometimes their parents mis misunderstand that as my daughter's getting out of shape. She's, she's, um, you know, she's going to become obese. And then they start making critical comments. I, I had a girl oh, a couple years ago, she was a, a teenager and she was t looking back. She said her dad would grab her, her upper arm and squeeze it and say, you're really getting fat, aren't you? Things of that sort. And that was so hurtful for her. 
you know, I mean, she's she's trying to develop her own body image anyway, and to get that kind of criticism from her dad, especially, was devastating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really like we're not um, we're not always aware of how damaging our comments can be, and I think when we, um, I think it's important to have to be mindful, um, and and to understand that. You know, there's our comments, but then there's the whole world that our our kids are living in, where yeah. there, you know, there's this barrage of 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 um, pressure and weight um, that they're you know being bar- bombarded by images from the media and even within their own peer groups. And so, I think we have to be really careful to change up that narrative and to. Speak and and to let them know that you know this weight gain is is normal it's important um it's preparing their bodies right and that their hips are going to widen and they're going to put weight on um in those places and just teaching them to appreciate their body for for all that it does and to take care of it well and to prioritize nutrition and exercise and focusing on those things. Yeah. Um, I've read too again that, yeah. that if there is a concern that that you bring it up with your pediatrician and, yeah. and, and go from there. Like I think I've I've read that girls during that that two or three years of of when their body's changing, they'll gain, you know, 40 to 50 pounds on average. I think I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. Sure I mean, if you not, want but... to talk about the numbers, yes. Like anywhere from 15 to 55 pounds between the ages of eight to 13. But again, I don't know if that information actually serves a parent well, because I really think the important thing is to move away from the numbers and yeah. focus on the nutrition piece and the exercise piece and partnering with your child to help them care for their bodies well during this transition and to understand that these changes are normal, that they are going to gain body fat and that body fat is important. It stores vitamins and nutrients and fuels their body for all the growth um, that they're undergoing. And it's important that their body shape changes. You know, puberty is that process of changing from a girl to and a, a woman um, from a child to an adult. And um, that change involves weight gain and height gain and all the rest of it, right? And all the other all the other pieces of, of, of puber- puberty. I think the overall message to communicate is that, you know, each girl's experience will be both similar and different from other girls, right? Some girls are gonna start their puberty earlier. Some are gonna finish later. Some are going to grow taller and gaining weight is all is all part of the process, even though it may vary from each from each individual. They're going to go breast, they're going to get pimples, they're going to develop body odor, they're going to grow hair in new and, and interesting places. And of course, there's also the they're going to get a period, right? And yeah. I think telling them, you know, that all these changes are normal. And telling them that um, that they're also important. They serve a purpose, right? Yeah, and I, I think it would probably be, I, I want to talk about menstruation and 
and and how you can talk to girls about that part. But also, but before we do, I wanted to highlight that I see a lot of girls who were the first one to, to start puberty. And it may have been like in fourth grade or fifth-ish grade. And so then they end up being the tallest person in the class, including the boys. And then they start getting curvy. They get breast buds. Uh, they start getting acne, all those things. And then they really stand out. And they, too many of them then look at themselves and say, you know, I'm different. I'm ugly. I'm fat. Um, I, I don't like the way I am. And they get, they, they have a huge complex about that because they look at their skinny little toothpick friends and they look at themselves and it's like, I guess I'm, I don't look like them. So that's a bad thing when they just aren't aware. Yeah. I mean, I think comparison is the thief of joy, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've got to understand that we are all uniquely made. And um, I think we have to start that messaging early and, you know, our genetics and other family members and what they look like, how tall they get, their weight, their body type, those things are going to impact um, like what our family norm is, mm. is, is going to impact how much, you know, we grow, how tall we become. And then the nutrition piece and the exercise piece also, you know, shapes all of that so I I mean your your child is not going to look like everybody else um they're going to look like they're designed to look like and I think shifting that narrative away from comparison and more looking at how they're choosing to self-care through puberty is, is is an important um is an important piece of helping your child to navigate puberty well we're talking to Dr. Maggie Abraham, who is an OBGYN doctor who's who's uh, found a, a niche in working with with girls and teens uh, with their health care, uh, especially their gynecological health care. Um, I think we're talking a lot about anticipatory guidance to if you give kids information before things happen that they won't be freaked out. It'll be more normalized for them. And the same thing, I assume, goes for their menstruation. So talk about what what parents should be when, what, what, you know, what, what girls need to know about that? Yeah. Well, they, they need to understand what a period is, right? Um, and so, I mean, parents often, often come to me going, how do I explain to them what a period is? Um, and so, you know, it's helpful, you know, to prepare a script and have it ready if you like, or, you know, Often kids, when they're part of the conversation, they're going to move it along. So I yeah. think um, parents, um, you know, I share my script with them and they can use it if they like or build their own or build on it themselves. But periods are like a monthly house cleaning that your body performs. Um, estrogen and progesterone hormones are released by the ovaries and they prepare the uterus lining in case a fertilized egg wants to attach and grow. And if none attaches, the body cleans up, causes bleeding, and then starts to prepare for the next month and the cycle continues. And I think it's important to explain to your, 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 your child that it's a normal process. 
and giving them the right names, um, teaching them their anatomy and um, helping them understand how to self-care when they have, when their period comes and preparing them for it. So exploring menstrual hygiene products, helping them to um, understand how to use them, modeling the simple things. So showing them how to, you know, apply a pad or, you know, having the, how to put in a tampon conversation, like don't leave them to figure it out themselves. You know, it may, it seems simple and intuitive to us as adults after years of doing it, but, you know, talking them through it, showing them and helping them navigate that new world um, is really important. They will, uh, you know, develop their own independence in that area, of course, but at the outset, you want to provide um, guidance and, you know, helping them prepare a period kit is a great way to help them prepare. Um, so I, and unfortunately, you know, you can't, you can't time it exactly for them. So you may not be around when that first period comes. Yeah. So um, giving them the tools, a period kit in their backpack or in their um, gym bag can be really helpful. So uh, I grew up when I was growing up, I had two older brothers and my parents, then they had me. And then my parents said, we'll never have any girls. And I had five younger sisters. And so my mom's method of educating my sisters was when they, when they had their first period, she would take a pad or a tampon and shove it underneath the bathroom door and say, take, take care of it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing you're saying that's not the proper way to go. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was I mean, the old we days. do the best we can given what's been modeled for us. Yeah. Right. And so I think we have an opportunity, like culture has evolved, right. It's changed. And I think, you know, we have an opportunity to do it differently. Of course, it's harder to model something or educate our, our, our children differently to how we've been educated, right? Um, but I think it, there's a lot of great resources out there to help us. Um, you know, menstruation has been taboo for so long. And, um, you know, culture is changing and, um, the worlds that we lived in are different to the worlds that our kids are living in. And um, I think there's always an opportunity to to make things better for the next generation. Yeah. And, and so this is one of those areas, right, where we now know more. Um, things are more, you know, people are more open to talking about menstruation and the challenges and um all those pieces. So we have a chance to do it differently. We don't yeah. have to. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's not just taboo talking about periods of menstruation. I think there's also this negative connotation around all of that. Like it's this horrible thing that girls have to suffer through. I, I, so girls, you know, I, I think then it creates more angst around it because it's, they've been told and heard and there's, you know, there's jokes about it and about being on your period. And so I think sometimes that also doesn't help. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a gap in our reproductive care for children and adolescents, right? Um, you know, the field of OBGYN largely 
existed for older reproductive age women, right? And so we're catching up and realizing that this, this age group has unique reproductive needs. And I think, you know, medicine and healthcare is evolving to meet those needs. And out of that, you know, the field of pediatric and adolescent gynecology was born. But I think, you know, people suffered in silence with, you know, abnormal periods, horrific periods that compromise their ability to do so many things. Um, But that's changing. Um, now young women, you know, parents don't want their children to go through what they went through. They don't want them missing school and missing activities and spending their teen years anemic because their period is too heavy or the unpredictability of a period arriving randomly in the middle of something and them saturating their clothes and being teased and embarrassed Um, I mean, that's the history, you know, and so we enter the conversation being respectful of what's happened before, and then, you know, try to change that narrative and normalize periods and get our youth talking about them and owning their bodies and the changes that they're going through and the evolution. I mean, puberty is an important milestone, you know, something to be celebrated, but not necessarily something that's easy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, I think it's important to hold all of that um, and, and to teach our children um, to, to grow into their bodies and accept them. Like we see that confidence um, really decreases in girls. Um, after they go through puberty. And I think some of it is because their body's undergoing so much change and it's mixed in with embarrassment and maybe even shame and tabooness and um, nobody to talk to and no framework for understanding. It's a massive change. And so equipping them to talk about it, giving them the space and the language to ask the questions that they need answers to. Um, I think some of those things are going to be formative. Very well said. Um, also, you know, you, I saw on your site, there was one statistic that two out of three girls um, have excessive pain with their periods, but only 15% of them uh, reach out and get care for it. And I, So right. how's a parent to know, or how's a girl and or their parents to know because there's there's going to be some pain, I think, with with their periods, and there's going to be lots right. of discomfort. So when is too much? When would they need to see someone like you? Right. So you know, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, actually recommends that you know the initial reproductive visit should be done sometime between the age of thirteen and fifteen. Um, so girls should be checking in. Um, about their reproductive care and um, seeing, like discussing, you know, their periods with a healthcare provider. Um, And many times, you know, painful periods um, can be talked about, reassurance and education can be provided and, um, and there can be simple treatments that um, that fix the problem. Um, but in other cases, 
you know, the underlying causes can be um, things like endometriosis. And um, if they're not adequately addressed during teen years, that can go on to have implications later in their reproductive lives, right? Chronic pelvic pain and infertility issues and a whole host of things. So it is important that these things get addressed, discussed, evaluated, and treated accordingly. But what happens too often is, oh, you know, we start questioning a child's pain tolerance. We start, you know, normalizing it in the sense, well, everybody in the family had painful periods. So it's just what it is. And you'll grow out of it. I mean, a large portion of teenagers do grow out of um, painful periods over time, but a significant proportion do not. Um, and, and if your child is missing school or activities because their period is too painful, that's not normal, right? And yeah. that is compromising their, their life. So to tell our listeners, so what then would you do about that? If their, if their periods was too painful or maybe too heavy, I assume you're using some hormone therapy and things for that? Well, it de- it depends. Um, yeah. You know, it has to be evaluated. Um, sure. Underlying causes need to be, you know, assessed. Often, um, you know, parents will often do simple things like scheduled Motrin, NSAIDs, heating pad, hydration, exercise, TENS unit, all of those things can help. But if they're not helping enough, um, then yes, we do have that conversation about the role of hormonal therapy um, in alleviating some of those symptoms and helping them get back to living their life. And, you know, um, sometimes a teenager may need it for, you know, a period of time. Um, They may need that help for a year or two and then they may be able to stop the medication and their period may, may be fine. Yeah. We're so talking to, to, to know that, you know, cause they start a hormonal method. It doesn't mean that they're going to remain on it forever. Right. Yeah. We generally encourage six to 12 months then take a break, reassess and kind of go from there. But um, birth control and hormonal therapy I, I mean, not everybody's, we're, we're moving like a lot away from pu- our puberty discussion now, but when we talk about hormonal therapy and using it in adolescence, you know, people tend to categorize it into, well, you know, birth control is just for pregnancy prevention, but quite commonly we use birth control for a host of other reasons, including managing heavy, painful periods that are disruptive to a teenager's life. We're talking to Dr. Uh, Maggie Abraham, who is a pediatric, pediatric and adolescent gynecologist. She's in Florida, but she's mouthful, a, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but she, but she has an online site which we're going to talk about in just a minute. I want, I want to ask you another question, which I, I, I think, I hope you, you'll be, you'll be willing to answer, which is, when girls, when you're seeing a 15 year old or 18 year old or a 17 year old, um, especially when they're less than 18. And they're asking about birth control, not for heavy periods, but because they're sexually active and they don't want their parents to know. I'm just curious about how you handle that. Yes, that that is a great question. So many minors 
will remain sexually active, but not seek healthcare services if they have to tell their parents. Mm -hmm. um, now, parental involvement, of course, you know, from a provider physician standpoint is, is highly desirable. We always want our teenagers to partner with a well, with, with, a, with their parent or guardian. Um, but, you know, states have expanded minors' authority to consent to health care, including care related to sexual activity. So that is their right. Um, and that, that, and our role as physicians is, is to take care of their, their needs. Um, but we always encourage, well, sorry, actually, if you can edit out, we always encourage, but we certainly um, have a conversation with any adolescent seeking um, contraceptive services around, you know, their behaviors, um, their decision to have sex and their decision to share that information with their parent or guardian and help them build capacity um, in those areas and make sure that they're exercising um, due caution um, and protecting themselves from any infections or an, an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, they need lots of education around all that, whether they get a birth control pill or not. I think all of that, I think that because otherwise, if they don't have someone like you to talk to, then they go online and who knows what they're getting online. Well, they're they to their friends and who knows what they're going to hear from their friends or their peers, yeah. somebody's older sister. It's like, uh, you know, you want them to get good, solid information so they can make really educated choices. Absolutely. And the concern, too, if they're not talking to a parent or guardian and, and involving them in in their decision to be sexually active then who are they involving and what is their understanding of consent and um, what is their understanding of what sex can and ought to be? Um, and, and, and all of those, those elements, right? So as a, as a provider who, who takes care of many um, sexually active adolescents and young adults, I, I feel a big responsibility to help them navigate that, um, that space in, yeah. in, a, in a healthy manner. You know, when we look at adolescents, you know, six, the data says about 65% of 18 year olds are sexually active. That's the majority of our, 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 our 18 year olds. And at 25, I think that jumps up to some, something in the 90s. So sex is a normal part of, of human behavior, right? But I think what, what's important when is understanding, you know, the why, like why they're having sex and are they doing it in a safe manner? And um, are they old enough and responsible enough to be making healthy decisions about sex? Yeah. This is probably not the place to have this conversation now, but I, I sometimes uh, think too that just like we talked about, sometimes there's such a negative energy around periods and joking and credit, you know, all that stuff. I think the same thing goes with sexuality and that the message they get is it's bad and you shouldn't do it. And there isn't much education about, well, there is a pleasurable part. It's a normal part of, 
of life. Yes. And I don't think they get any education about all that stuff, about how your body works in that way. Yeah. And that, yeah, you're so right. And, and the idea of um, their sexual well-being, right? And I think I'm just going to like bring it back a little bit to the puberty conversation that we were having, you know, reproductive health education and sex education. They're actually two different things. We bring yeah. them, you know, we kind of smush them together as sex ed, but you know, your young six, seven, eight-year-old, you're teaching them reproductive health education. You know, you're teaching them about their anatomy, the correct naming parts. You're teaching them about the puberty changes. You're teaching them about vaginal discharge, grow, um, growing in um, height and weight changes and all of those pieces that we've been talking about and, you know, hair and breast development, all of those elements. And then sex education is is an extension of that education that you're going to bring in as your child gets older, where you talk to them about, you know, having healthy sexual relationships and um, preventing sexually transmitted infections, um, talking to them about contraception, talking to them about arousal, talking to them about um, attractions and desire and all of those pieces, right? And so they're ex an extension of each other um, and they happen at different, the conversation around them, like you lay the foundation oh. early and then you build upon it over time. And I think those conversations over time are so important to position your child well um, for a full life, right? Yeah. I, did a, I think I did a podcast or maybe it was an article or a blog. I can't remember. I think it was a podcast about about when you should uh, talk to your kids about sex. And I, I said in there that um, it's not about having a conversation when they're 15 and talking about the birds and the bees, that sex education is really relationship education, most of it, or what it could or should be. And that starts when they're little, respect and consent, not with sexuality, but it's like being tickled or people's words setting boundaries, you know, doing things to fulfill you so you have a high self-confidence. There's a lot of things that we can do way before the talk that have nothing to do with the physical part. Absolutely. I think, you know, the sad thing is that, you know, porn is becoming like the default sex education because yeah. in the absence of us having those conversations with our children, they are going out there and going to social media for their information. And I, I think we really need to be aware of that. And, and even though we may feel ill-equipped to have those conversations, I think as parents, it, it, it's our responsibility to, to at least try, right? Yeah. As uncomfortable as it may feel. But I think when you commit to, to, to to having them i think once you get over the mental the yeah. mental block of that piece you know conversation is natural we're built as humans to talk right with each other and converse and um and and our children they want to know um they they may 
<laughs> they may not want to make eye contact when they're having the conversation. They may feel a little awkward and embarrassed. And it's never too late to start, right? right. And to build that 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 correct understanding, a healthy understanding. Um, that they will continue to to build upon throughout their life and through the experiences that they have, right? Yeah. If you have a reasonable, yeah, if you have a reasonable relationship with them, if them, if you've been a good listener and and you're safe to them, then they want to hear from us about all kinds of things, not, not just sexuality, but they want to hear from us. They they do they do value what we have to say in our experience. And I think even though they roll their eyes and they walk through the door and grunt, they, that doesn't mean they don't care about us or care about what we have to say. I think sometimes parents misinterpret that, and we don't have to know all the answers, right? No. But speaking of that, I've been keeping you too long. You do have all the answers on your website, right? Tell parents about the, the Gain space, because I think there is a lot of great information. I didn't look at everything, but I glanced through and there are articles um, and there are programs and things. Tell, tell, tell parents what uh, the Gain space is all about. So, you know, as I hope has become a parent and as you listen to me or talked with me, you know, the narratives of teenagers and coming of age stories, they really do hold a special place in my heart. Um, and so now I'm an expert in gynecology, but, you know, when I was a teenager, I knew like very little about my own body. And um, I started the gyne space to put skilled GYN care in the hands of young people. Um, to engage them where they're at and um, impart knowledge and fun and relatable ways, hopefully, and also to take care of their gynecology needs, right, and help them to build capacity um, as it relates to their reproductive health care. And so I worked in many different um, institutions uh, since my fellowship, um, large hospital institutions and academic institutions. And over time, I decided I really just wanted to start my own practice. And um, so I did that earlier this year. It's called the Gyne Space. It's virtual GYN care for anybody living in the state of Florida. So I found like my patients were coming from all over the state. Um, and so this was a way of reaching them where they're at, like being accessible, um, and, um, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's, we just opened in August, so it's early days yet, but, um, yeah. So anybody, I, I'm guessing somebody from St. Louis, somebody from California, somebody from Australia, I have listeners all over the place. Yeah. Anybody can use your, you don't have to live in Florida, right? Anybody can go on my website. Right. Um, there are blogs there and different things, but to actually access telehealth services, mm. you have to be resident and you have to be in, in the state of Florida. Yeah. Well, there's so. lots of great information. I think also I, I looked at some of the titles of the blogs and things. There's a lot of information that obviously invaluable for teenagers and, and all that, but also invaluable for their parents who also, like you say, haven't been educated very well about what what's going on with, with a period and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And to learn together. Check it out. And yeah, happy to. It may be a little bit awkward at first, but to learn those kinds of things together with your daughter, you know, starting when she's 10, 12, 15. Um, if you start the conversation early and it's not 
there you get rid of all the this is awkward thing then then you can learn together all along the way about what's what's next and what's next and what's next and understand your body and your and moms especially can let their daughters know i didn't know this stuff when i was your age and so i really want you to get it and i, I want to learn it with you yeah yeah for sure i think i think it's a unique way to partner with your with your daughter um and help them build agency so to access that information what is the website the gynspace.com so yeah. the gynspace.com yeah great i'll put i'll put that yeah. uh, parents who are listening i'll put that in my show notes that that link in case you don't have a pen you're driving around in the car or something so you yeah, can I appreciate look at that, that you can look at that and, and get some information thank yeah. you so much for for stopping by today on raising daughters and giving our parents and girls i've a lot of girls who listen as well uh, this information, which is so valuable, and they, they just don't get it anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, there are some great resources out there. I think just sometimes we just don't know. Um, we don't know what we don't know <laughs> until we know it, right? Yeah. Um, so there are some great books. Um, there's some great websites. Um, certainly, I'll, I'll share them with you, um, Tim, and you can maybe uh, put a link on Um at the end of the podcast, sure so parents parents have a little roadmap of where to go because yeah. because we want to get this information out there. We want to help you um, as you help your your child. Thank you so much uh, for dropping by here. Yes. Well, that was great. That was very interesting. That's a lot of good information. Uh, from Dr. Abraham, and I, I would strongly encourage you to go to her website. Uh, her website, let me make sure I get this right, is thegynspace.com. Also, she has an Instagram account, which is at the uh, underscore uh, gyn underscore space, uh, and, she, and she posts things on Instagram as well. I will put that link also in my show notes. Uh, maybe have you listened to this podcast like you already have, I guess. Then maybe it'd be good to listen, have your daughter listen. This is a really good one. Start some conversations. Even if your daughter is in fifth grade or seventh grade or 10th grade, uh, they need this information really, really badly. And so maybe you can learn together with her. I'll be back here with a new podcast in a week. I greatly appreciate you stopping by here. I will see you back here in a week. Mm -hmm.